I'd like to read verses 20 through 25 here in Matthew 26, and then we'll jump over to John 13. We'll read these two passages this morning. Matthew 26, verses 20 through 25. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Turn over to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Let's read verses 21 through 30. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another as at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Jesus had, Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that we should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your glorious word, the opportunity to study it together as a church family. I pray that you would give us great understanding and that we would respond appropriately to the things that we've read here today. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you together as a church family and ask your blessings on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Extra, extra, read all about it. Those words we don't hear very often anymore, unless you've been at one of our local VBSs, in which those words were sung in one of those songs recently. Some of the kids know those words. But those words were common fare over around 100 years ago. The main distributors of newspapers to the general public in the mid-1800s to the early 1900s in the United States were newspaper boys, also called newsboys or newsies by some. While they weren't employed by the publishers of newspapers, they purchased papers at their own personal cost and then sold them as independent agents. Cries of extra, extra, read all about it were often heard into the morning hours as newsboys would attempt to hawk their papers to those who were walking by. An encyclopedia notes that a popular writer of the period said this, there are 10,000 children living on the streets of New York. The newsboys constitute an important division of the army of these homeless children. 
You see them everywhere. They rend the air and deafen you with their shrill cries. They surround you on the sidewalk and almost force you to buy their papers. They're ragged and dirty. Some have no coats, no shoes, no hats. Developed um, a following. The musical depicts the newsboys' strike of 1899, in which the newsies were able to secure for themselves better wages by refusing to deliver newspapers for a two-week period. Over that two-week period, uh, one particular newspaper went from selling around 360,000 papers down to 120,000 papers. So those publishers realized real quick that there was a direct correlation between the newsies' efforts to sell the paper, sell the news, and their actual uh, selling of their papers. Well, today not only do we seldom find ourselves in plazas listening to news headlines being shouted by little children all around us, we hardly even see any paper boys in the form of merely newspaper distribution anymore. They're becoming more and more scarce. So much printed media is moving to digital platforms. Due to the abilities that are afforded by the Internet, news is available to us at blazing speeds. We can hear of even the most inconsequential events on the other side of the world mere seconds after those things happen. I mean, aren't you glad that you can be informed that when gorillas in San Diego have C-sections performed? Um, aren't you glad that you can hear about Northampton clowns who are scaring residents in England? Um, that an orphan squirrel has made a new home in a young girl's ponytail, um, about how a kitten that sounds like a turkey uh, is up for adoption in Florida, how a giant python recently swallowed a woman's pet dog while she was sleeping. Um, how about the Texas man who was arrested well, because he was wearing a cookie monster onesie? Or about how would we know what a fox says? Or how to build a luxury treehouse? Or what the top three worst pet mamas are? Uh, how would we know those things were it not for... The blessings of the Internet. This is one of the consequences of living in the information age. Information overload, I believe, is drowning out the news that people most need to hear. Our minds are swamped and flooded with all kinds of trivia and tidbits and stuff that doesn't matter at all. Some people might call it brain rot. It it exists and it's all over the place. And sometimes I think we're so inundated with information overload that we're not listening to the ones that we really need to listen to. And those who are reporting the news that men most need to hear are being drowned out by a lot of other voices. So what can we do to make sure that the most important news is transmitted to other people? Well, any good carrier of information knows that it's not merely what you tell someone else, but how you tell them and when you tell them that can make all the difference. If we're to be wise purveyors of information, we must carefully select the moments in which we share news if it's going to have the most lasting impact. There's some things that it doesn't matter the timings. No special timing is necessary. In fact, some piece of information, if you're holding them for some special occasion, would just be ridiculous. By the time you told it, it's like, why were you waiting to tell me that? that? There's nothing unique or special about that. But there are other pieces of news that demand great thoughtfulness and care in the telling. Surely we can understand that this in the realm of business. Information regarding changes for a business have to be handled with care so that people not only hear the information, but they know how that particular business is going to perform after they have uh, 
announce that news, what their future prospects are, how, they're, how it's going to affect present activities. People like to know what the game plan is going forward, or people either gain or lose confidence, depending on the leadership's ability to kind of weather through storms and make changes as they are needed. Certainly on the personal level, we all have moments in which big news has been held and told at a strategic moment. Uh, news of engagements or of the soon arrival of a new member to your family, whether through birth or adoption, or the difficult news that you've lost your job or that someone in your family has come under some serious ailment or disease. Perhaps even difficulties found within our marriages, being able to share those. And this is one of those things where knowing what to share, who to tell, how and when to tell them are all matters that we are engaged in thinking about. The impact of the news that we share has to be thoroughly considered And our reason for sharing that news needs to be scrutinized as well. What is our motivation in sharing what we're sharing? Well, here on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, he has some big news to share. And I believe that we can learn some things about news sharing in general as we consider what Jesus communicates to his disciples in the upper room in a sermon entitled Extra Extra, The Betrayer identified. We'll walk through this news event with four R's, and each one of these not only will walk us through the text, but also provides us with a criterion by which we can consider how we share news with others of a more general nature and then of the gospel in particular as well. We'll look at the report, the reaction, the revelation, and the reason together this morning. First of all, the report. And I think the idea of the report causes us to consider the moment in which we tell someone something. Let's set the stage here for this particular scenario in Jesus' ministry. Remember, we're here on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion. The next day, he will be offered up as a sacrifice, as a ransom for many. We're here in the upper room. Jesus and his disciples are celebrating the feast of the Passover. It's evening. The sun has gone down low on the horizon. Dinner is being enjoyed by the light of the stars and the light of lamps, whatever might have been placed around the room. And here we have a wonderful time of intimacy with the disciples. They're all close to one another. They're eating the feast of the Passover. There's just something about eating that kind of brings us together. And it's not just because we're Baptists that we like eating together. I mean, it seems to be something that we Baptists uh, specialize in. But it is something um, to be said about the, the community that has developed through sharing a common table and eating with one another. There really is something special about eating with others around the table. I think it's one of the reasons why heaven is sometimes depicted as a wedding banquet of the Lamb, a big banquet feast where we are gathered together with the Lord Jesus Christ, feasting with one another. I find it interesting that with all the technological advances that have happened today and the ability for us to, you know, individualize and not have to interact with people very much and all the rest, that there's still a huge uh, outcry for restaurants. And yes, some of them are fast food varieties, so you can just run through and go on with your day, but there's still a huge amount of restaurants that exist for the express purpose so people can come in and sit down and enjoy a meal together with other people. This is still something that's special to humanity. Reclining at the table, that's their position that they would have had. This was a unique feast, one in which they would recline um, at the table. It was kind of a feeling of uh, lack of haste, which is kind of the opposite of what was happening when the first Passover happened. Remember, after that, they'd gather all their stuff. 
uh, unleavened bread and all of that was for reminder that they didn't even have time for the bread to leaven, to rise. They had to just get out of Egypt quickly. But here they celebrate the Feast of Passover in the reclined position, which led to an even closer, more intimate environment. Expressions of family and love and care would have been noticeably present if you were there in the room as Jesus participating it, participated in the Passover or, as we remember, it, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, as it was first instituted. Well, right there in the middle of that environment, there's a troubling situation that Jesus announces. We're told here that Jesus was troubled in spirit. We have seen and we will see that Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen to him. Yet his knowledge doesn't leave him without emotion. Jesus feels truly and he feels deeply. He is troubled in spirit, we're told. So the feast, this festival, is touched with some sorrowful words. Jesus chooses this moment to share some very startling news with his disciples. He has some sad things to say. What's interesting, though, is it's not really all that much unlike the Feast of Passover, which is itself kind of a remembrance of sad times and the resulting joy that came out of those sad times. Remember, they're celebrating their deliverance from Egypt and all the horrible tasks that they were under as slaves while in Egypt. But meanwhile, there's also then the remembrance of God's deliverance out of that situation. Jesus has already quoted in Psalm 41 concerning that there's going to be a betrayal soon coming to him and one that would be very close to him. But it's possible this disciple still hadn't connected the dots in what Jesus was saying there. And so while this whole setting looks like they're all a unified, cohesive group, Jesus is about to level a a, a bombshell here. One of you is going to betray me. He says, there's a traitor in our midst. And the list of suspects narrows. He says, one of you, one of the twelve, the hand of the betrayer is upon this table. One dipping into this bowl. In other words, Jesus is saying, it is one of you sitting right here with me. One of you is going to betray me. There he's eating with his close circle of friends, but one has less than friendly intentions regarding Jesus. Again, as we've said before, let this be a reminder to us that we can all experience betrayal from the closest sources. Sometimes those whom we think are the closest to us can be working in destructive ways. If it happened to Jesus, then surely it can happen to us. But I hope that we learn from the way that Jesus even handles Judas through this whole account how to be gracious even to those who are bent on our destruction. Remember, Judas is one of the people there when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet. He didn't skip over Judas. His feet were washed just as everyone else's were. This life is filled with both joy and pain. And Jesus is experiencing some of that even here at his last supper. But due to Jesus' sacrifice, we know the blessed news that there's coming a day in which there will only be joy. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more sickness, no more pain. There will only be happiness. There will be no more troubled spirits. One day, no more trouble like this. No more kisses of betrayal. No more facades. All will be as it really is. Jesus picked this moment because it was so very arresting. He grabs his disciples' attention 
And these words would be remembered by the disciples. And we know that for sure because all four Gospels repeat them. (laughs) All four Gospels talk about Jesus' words on this occasion in saying this. What reaction do we see that happens? What reaction? Well, whenever we think about sharing news with someone, whenever we give a report, it's appropriate for us to consider how the person that we're talking to is going to respond to the news that we just shared with them. Consider the man. Consider the individual. How are they going to respond to the things that we're sharing? Well, first of all, what we see, the immediate response of the disciples was confusion. They're confused because this news that was just shared with them was in contradiction with their established thoughts. I mean, there they are. They're enjoying the Passover together in this close, intimate setting with one another. I mean, they understood that there were people that didn't like Jesus out there. I mean, out there somewhere. I mean, there were religious leaders who were bent on Jesus' destruction. They knew that. They knew there were people against him. But when Jesus says that there is a traitor here at this table sitting right here with me, they're just astonished. I mean, I understand somebody out there that's against you, Jesus, but in here, a traitor in their midst, among the twelve, sitting at this very table, eating this very supper, dipping in that very dish? How is that possible? You see, sometimes news we share with people will upset them. Because it will have a confusing effect at first. Whenever we share truth with someone that abolishes their existing presuppositions, it puts them into a tizzy. They're confused. What's going on here? This, this doesn't fit with what I already think I know. But in order for someone's thoughts to be shaped by truth, you have to first uncover the false notions that have taken up residence there. When we speak truth, it's in contrast with the lie. And lies are exposed as we proclaim truth. Here Jesus is exposing a presupposition that they held on to, the thought that the enemies are only outside of us. But Jesus is revealing to them, no, there's an enemy right here in this very room, one among you very twelve. You see, this is why we have to take great care when we propose truth. Because when we do so, we we understand that we're having to refute errors and lies. The gospel is not, you can add Jesus to your already crowded life. Or... You, you can love Jesus and love money at the same time. Um, or you can love the world, continue to be worldly, and just add Jesus to your worldly lifestyle. No, those are options in the gospel. You can't continue in sin with no repentance while claiming to have Jesus as your Savior. This is why we share the bad news when we share the good news. Because the good news is precisely good because it alone is able to deal with the bad. You see, there's bad news you need to understand in order to understand just how good the good news is. Should a man deny his depravity, deny his sin, deny the fact that he's earned death and deserves hell, then he'll be blind to his need for a savior. He'll see no reason to call out to the Lord Jesus Christ to save him if he doesn't think that he's in trouble, if he doesn't understand his problem. As concerning as confusion can be for people, it actually is a very good thing. It's unsettling because all of a sudden, everything that they kind of linked all their thoughts around is like crumbling around them. It's an unsettling time. It's a confusing time. But part of what it means to bring news to others is to be prepared for that time of unsettling, time for, prepared for their confusion. Yes, it's unsettling, 
But it's unsettling precisely because their thoughts have been rooted in truth. They've been rooted in lies. To unsettle someone from their present position such that they can then be rooted in truth is a much better situation than where they were before. The disciples' immediate reaction was confusion, looking at one another. We also see another response from them, that of exceeding sorrow. We're told that there is a whole lot of sorrow among the disciples as Jesus says this. Not only are they shocked and surprised, but they're sorrowful. Now, Judas's duplicity must have been very great because none of the disciples, as soon as Jesus says that, go point to Judas like, there's the guy. They're always staring at Judas like, there's the man. Everybody instead saying, not I, Lord, is it? I mean, it's a heart-searching moment. The disciples are like, which one of, it, of us could it be? It, it couldn't be me, is it? Concerning that case would be like, I'm scared that I might accidentally or inadvertently have done something wrong. Maybe I've done something to, to betray you. And is it me? Have I done something? Are you talking about me, Lord? We see this heart searching moment and this moment of sorrow and shock as this news sits and rests on the disciples. We also see them starting to become divisive with one another. If, on the other hand, what Jesus is speaking about here is not just some inadvertent thing, but a purposeful, deliberate act of betrayal, then who is the man? I mean, you go move from this, is it me, is it me, is it me, is it me? Well, who is it? Who is the guy? And I'm sure at that moment everyone's looking at each other suspiciously. Who is this man who could be doing this to our Lord? We see that in Luke's gospel that this discussion leads right into what we talked about last week, a discussion about who's the greatest. All of a sudden they divide over that, and then next moment, you know, they're talking about, well, who's really the greatest among all of us? We see them starting to fight with one another. And then there's Peter. Peter, a disciple, could never leave a matter alone. But I find it kind of interesting because I wonder if he just gotten burned way too many times by blurting out something. So this time he's like, hey, John, John. You're the guy this time. You're sitting next to Jesus. Why don't you ask him? Ask Jesus, John, who's the guy? He starts to gesture to John. Now, it's interesting. Oh, by the way, I you know, let the cat out of the bag. I, I think this is John. Uh, he's not referred to, though, as John in the text, is he? He's referred to as what? The disciple whom Jesus loved. Very good. The disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he's described here. By the way, that description happens four times from here to the end of the gospel. This is the first time that it occurs. And there's a generous amount of debate over who this individual is. Um, The very last occasion which that term comes up, the disciple whom Jesus loved, happens in John 21. After Peter's restoration, and there's a discussion between Peter and Jesus, and Jesus has some pretty sobering words to tell Peter about what's going to happen with Peter. And Peter then asks, well, what about that guy? (laughs) And he points to the disciple whom Jesus loved. And Jesus says, whatever happens with him is none of your concern. It's my business. But then right after that, that individual identifies himself as the authority behind this gospel. He says, and these things were written by me and that I have seen and all the rest. So, So whoever you identify as the man whom Jesus loved, you also then identify as the author of the gospel, the writer of this gospel, or at least the authority behind the writing of the gospel. And as you can tell, most people identify this as John. You can do this kind of by a process of elimination of the individuals from the other gospel accounts as well. But it seems very likely that who we're talking about here is John. 
Why does John refer to himself that way? Why doesn't he just say his name? Why does he call himself the one whom Jesus loved? Well, some people have looked at this and said, well, man, he's just like an egotistical, prideful, arrogant man. You know, I'm the one who Jesus loved. Well, that's one way you can read that text, or that kind of biting sarcasm or that kind of arrogance. But another way that it can be read is that he was so much in awe and wonder over the love of Jesus. Instead, he's saying, wow, I'm one whom Jesus loved. It's interesting, he takes at least a... Uh, page out of John the Baptist's playbook, because John the Baptist said, I must decrease and he must increase. And so what John ends up doing is he doesn't emphasize himself, but instead emphasizes the love of his Savior. He says, I'm one whom Jesus loved. You know, at the end of the day, what's really more important about us anyway? Our name or that we're loved by Jesus? This is what, Je- this is what John emphasized, if it is indeed John. We don't know for sure, but it seems quite likely that it is John. This is what he is emphasizing, is the love of Jesus. So Peter asks John to ask Jesus to identify the man. All that I want you to see in all of this is that people have different responses to news. You see some who get confused by it. Some who begin to become introspective, they look at themselves and they start to examine their own hearts and ask the Lord to examine them. Others become divisive and start pointing the finger. Who's the person? It's not me. They blame somebody else. And others look for other ways to try to get at information and pull information further. There's a multitude of ways in which people can respond to news. But we should consider how they'll respond when we share with them. The third thing we see here is the revelation And here we can consider the manner in which something is told. Jesus has a couple of different ways in which he approaches this information, the way in which he disseminates it to his disciples. First of all, I want you to note that he, first of all, gives a general announcement, which leaves open the exact identity of the betrayer to the whole group. Perhaps partly, he asks, why does he even do that? Why, Why identify this man generally? Well, we'll talk a little bit more about the motivation in a minute. But it is possible that in this, Jesus is affording even Judas one last opportunity to repent of his course of action. Most of the disciples are given an indication without precise identification. It is not until afterward the disciples connect how plainly Jesus has identified Judas. They'll get it later, but they don't get it at the time. John is provided a little bit more, though, because Peter, who's motioning to John, who's now asked Jesus to let me know who's who's the guy. Jesus says to John, the one to whom I give this morsel is the traitor. Now, as many of you are aware, we've celebrated in years gone by um, some Christian satyrs, Passover Seder Christian celebrations. And we've noted during that celebration, what was typical is that they would dip several things during that meal. It was part of the symbolic remembrance of what happened. Dipping of carpas into salt water to symbolize the tears of the children of Israel all in slavery. They would dip into a kereset, which was a mixture of apples and dates, which kind of was symbolic of the mortar that the Egyptians made the Israelites make when they were there. So there's several, and they dip also bitter herbs to remember the bitterness that was involved in slavery. Again, you see how there's some negative imagery associated with it because they're remembering where they used to be. A huge part of Passover was a remembrance of the slavery they were in before God delivered them. So there was some bad news they were remembering, but then there's a joyfulness also in thanksgiving that they've been delivered out of that horrible slavery. So it is for us in the gospel, right? 
One of the most precious things is to remember what God has saved us out of. What he saved us from in bringing us to himself. Well, anyway, it would have been common for someone during that meal to have dipped all sorts of things. So that wouldn't have been very unusual. Add on top of that, that many hosts in that uh, place in the world would find themselves often offering a morsel to, to a guest that's at the table. Jesus here acting as the host of, of the, the Passover. It would not be um, unusual for him to go, oh, here's a particularly great morsel, and to give that to somebody else at the table. So recognize that it's not as if Jesus is doing something that's really out-and-out out strange or weird, which is part of the question that comes to our mind. is like, why isn't everybody identifying that it's Judas? Why is there still so much confusion? I mean, even after Judas really leaves the room, they're still thinking good things about Judas, not bad things. So how is that possible? Well, at least keep that in your mind contextually, that dipping of things was part of Passover, and the distribution of a, a particularly good morsel of food was something that was symbolic and, uh, of the blessing of a host towards a guest in that culture. So anyway, keep all of that in mind. Jesus says to John, the person that I give this morsel to is the individual. Now, I wonder where Judas is sitting. We can figure out from the depiction of it where John is sitting. John must be sitting on Jesus' right the reason we know that is because they would all recline on their left and they would eat with their right hand. So everybody's kind of sitting in a reclined position and they would be eating with the right hand. So if John leans back onto Jesus' bosom, that would mean that Jesus is right this way of him. And so he's probably right on Jesus' right. The question is, where is Judas in this picture? Certainly we are not told explicitly. But it seems like some of the details might connect quite well if Judas is sitting on the other side of Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, for one thing, after he dips the sop, he has no problem giving it to Judas. The typical arrangement of the table would have been in a U-shape. And so it would have been hard for him to have just done that, unless he had gotten up from the table and, again, given it to Judas, which, again, might have appeared a little bit more strange and might have maybe given away a little bit more what was going on. Another thing that we know is that, uh, we'll talk about this in a minute, but Judas actually even asks Jesus a question. He says, is it I, Lord? And Jesus responds to this. In Matthew's Gospel, we see this. And he says, it's as you said. Now, if anyone else would have heard that, it seems like, again, the gig's up. But if Judas is right behind Jesus and whispers into Jesus' ear and Jesus responds, it is possible that not many people heard it at the table. Again, these are all potentials. We don't know for sure. But isn't it fascinating, if indeed that's the case, that Judas is sitting on the left side of Jesus. By the way, from that perspective, that was considered the place of honor. Um, either side of the host was, was an honorable position, but the seat at the host's left, which from the other person's perspective would be his right, was considered the place of honor. So again, if that's true, this is another fascinating little detail that Judas is being afforded so much uh, graciousness and love, and Jesus knows exactly what's brewing in Judas's heart. Due to no one doing anything, many people believe that nobody understood what Jesus was doing there. However, I believe it's quite possible that John did. What's to say that John didn't understand what was happening at that moment? Jesus just said, whoever I give this to is the guy. What's to say that John didn't watch Jesus give it to Judas and John now knows. John knows that Judas is the guy. But then the further question is, well, then why doesn't he shout out? Why doesn't he say anything? Again, we're all speaking on things that aren't specifically listed in the text. So why doesn't he say anything then? Well, perhaps it's because he's stunned. Because Jesus is plainly identified the betrayer, and yet Jesus isn't doing anything to stop him. 
Or if is probably the case, John is probably the youngest of all the disciples. Perhaps he didn't feel it his place to do anything, especially if Jesus, the God man, saw fit to not make the matter more public than he had just done. In other words, John says, who's it going to be? Jesus says, the guy I passed this thing to. And so he passes it to him, and John's like, whoa. And then right after that, we see Jesus saying, what you do, do quickly, and Judas leaves the room. Also remember that there's not a whole lot of time to mount an offensive or a defensive course of action. This betrayal is happening immediately. And, and I doubt that John was thinking in his mind, even if he knew that now Judas is the guy, that John's thinking, wow, it's going to happen tonight. You know, I've got to work on this quick. Um, so again, there's a whole lot of things that are just left up in the air. Part of the questions that are part of the text here is just, why don't all the disciples get it? But we certainly know there's still misunderstanding regarding what is going on. But in retrospect, it all becomes very, very clear. We're told as soon as Jesus handles, hands the morsel over to Judas, we're told that Satan enters Judas's heart. Jesus tells Judas to do what he does quickly, and Judas leaves immediately into the night. By the way, it was not only true of the, the, the time of day at which this was, but seems even kind of stylistic that that description would be given. It's certainly part and parcel of an eyewitness account that you have like details like that that are given. But it is fascinating that that statement is made right after that. Judas leaves and he goes out into the night, into the darkness. Um, I think it's probably even uh, literarily descriptive of Judas's heart, not only of the time of day. Judas has now for the last time left the light of the world and he's traveled decisively out into the darkness. It's hard to tell when Judas left, by the way. There's a lot of debate about the timing in which Judas leaves this meal. Because some people have built like theological positions on how they handle the Lord's Supper based upon whether or not Judas was there when it was participated in. The argument goes like this, is if Jesus is participating in the Lord's Supper and Judas, who betrayed him, is actually not in Christ. And meanwhile, Judas then participates in the Lord's Supper as it's delivered. Then does that have implications on how a church observes the Lord's Supper? Um, which gets into a whole further discussion. But all I want to say is this. There isn't really a definitive answer to that. One of the big reasons why is because John's gospel doesn't even talk about the Lord's Supper proper. You just have them celebrating the, the feast of Passover, and you have all this rich detail regarding Judas leaving and all the rest. All that discussion about John leaning back on Jesus' bosom and talking to Jesus and Jesus giving the morsel and all that, that's all in John. It's not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You don't have those details in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But meanwhile, John doesn't have a recounting of the Lord's Supper or when that was instituted. So you don't know if that happened before or after. You don't know when Judas leaves. In the other accounts, in two of the Gospels, this discussion happens on one side of the Lord's Supper, and in the other Gospel, it happens on the other side of the Lord's Supper. So the question is, well, which side did it happen? We know it's in the middle of Passover. They're celebrating the Jewish feast of Passover, which Jesus, and we'll talk about this next time, imbues with new significance. He takes old symbols and gives them new symbolic significance in relationship to him. He says, from now on, you'll think of me when this is celebrated. Because this, I am the picture of the greater exodus. I am the greater deliverance. I am the greater forgiveness. I am the greater one in all of these matters. So here we see that Judas gets up. We can't be dogmatic about when Judas gets up, but he does get up and he leaves. And the disciples still can't connect the dots. They don't understand what's going on. They assume, and this also says something about their appraisal of Judas, and maybe something also about their, their general heart intentions. They thought the best of Judas. They go, 
He must be, Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. He gets up and leaves and go, it must be because he has the money box. He must be going off to like get supplies for the rest of the feast. Remember, the Feast of Unleavened Bread would continue for seven days after the Feast of Passover. So maybe he's getting supplies for the next coming days. That's what some people believe. Others believe, well, he's got the money box. Maybe he's going off to help someone who's poor and is in need. And Jesus has said, go and do that. Go and do it quickly. And we'll see you back here. This kind of idea. But all we do know is the disciples still are thinking good thoughts of Judas. They, they don't know that rather than delivering money to the poor as an act of love toward Jesus, Judas intends to deliver Jesus out of his act of love for money. Right? Complete flip-flop. They're assuming that maybe he's out of love for Jesus giving to the poor, but really out of hate for Jesus, he's giving Jesus over because he loves money. And that's what he's really after here. Certainly all of these things that were happening were ordained by God, but not all things are always told us in advance. Here we have an example in which God through Jesus, gives here a specific amount of information, but he doesn't give them every piece of information, such that they can't figure it all out. But in retrospect, it makes perfect sense. We've talked about this on other occasions. It seems like a lot of prophecy in the Bible works that way. Um, where people get into danger with prophecy is when they become over-stylized and over-particular about the exact enactment of how those things are going to happen. And that sometimes what gives a bad taste in our mouth for people's handling of prophecy when they make these huge charts and they delineate exactly how it's going to go and then it doesn't go that way and then they look like fools, right? Um, God gives enough information such that when it happens, it's undeniably the God who did it. But he doesn't give us so much information that we rest back on our laurels and go, wow, I knew all the things that were going to happen. We see that kind of similar thing here. Jesus gives enough information that it is un... um, There's no question, unquestioned, that Jesus was identifying Judas as the betrayer. But they didn't get it at the time. But they will get it afterward. And it will make all it will all make sense in that moment. This is how God often works in relationship to us, because he knows how arrogant and prideful the human heart can be. If he had told us every single detail that would happen, how many of us would sit back and rest on our laurels instead of just depending upon him day after day as each new day comes? So at the beginning of the feast, Besides Jesus, the only other one in the room who knows that there's a betrayer is Judas himself. He knows what he's plotting. Perhaps even at the very moment that Jesus Jesus brings it up, Judas is thinking about his plan. How am I going to betray Jesus? Matthew records that Judas then even asks Jesus, not I, Rabbi. Now, Interesting. He uses the same sort of phraseology as the rest of the disciples, perhaps to throw him off the trail, right? If everybody else in the room is going, not I, is it me, is it me, is it me? What does Judas have to do? Is it me? And instead he's just quiet. It's like, why isn't he asking if it's him, right? So I think, again, Judas is just engaging that same thing. But what is interesting is he uses a different word of title. He doesn't say, is it I, Lord? He says, is it I, Rabbi? He uses the phrase, teacher, which again, I think tells more of his heart than even maybe people might say at first glance. He's, Jesus is not Judas' Lord. He is a teacher whom Judas is willing to betray and hand over to the authorities. So here he is, in an effort to follow suit with the other disciples and perhaps throw them off the trail, he asks the same question, but then Jesus says to him, you have spoken it. <laughs> Literally, it reads, so you say. So you've spoken. Um, here again is a 
warning, I think, from Jesus. It's an opportunity for Judas to disclose his deeds of darkness. Jesus is saying now to Judas, I know what you're intending. And yet, we see that Judas just has resolved to finish the job that he'd been plotting. Oh, how those words then from Jesus must have echoed through Judas's ears as he went out into the night. What you do, do quickly. What you do, Judas, do quickly. How desperately hard Judas's heart must have been that he would rebuff all these warnings, that he would resist the light and flee into the darkness and engage in his dastardly plot. It's a great reminder to all of us. Do not treat your heart as a light thing. Hardening your heart against the Lord leads to further hardening. Obstinate stubbornness leads to more obstinate stubbornness apart from God's grace to break the hardened heart. Even right now, are you being softened or hardened by God's word? You understand that God's word has an impact on every heart. It will have an impact. What is going on in your heart right now? There's Jesus amidst friends and a betrayer. He tells the betrayer to get it done quickly. And as Judas leaves, Jesus now is left with some precious last moments with his friends. Judas must have wondered why he hadn't been explicitly exposed by Jesus. I mean, Jesus now just looked Judas in the eye and said, you're the guy. I know it. Go do it. Do it quickly. Get it done. I wonder what Judas is thinking. It's like, you know, the, the plot is uncovered by the guy you're trying to do this against. And he's telling you to go and do it quickly. Why didn't he just stop me? Why didn't he, why didn't he tell the other disciples? I mean, they bound me right there. Stop this whole thing. Why is this happening? Well, it comes to our last point. The reason. Consider the motivation behind sharing something. We see here that this is all a foreordained event. Jesus does provide us with an explanation as to why he's sharing this news on this occasion. Why the sad news on what otherwise should be a nice, you know, quiet evening before the crucifixion? Why the sad news? He already said in John thirteen eighteen, I know the ones I've chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Matthew and Mark tell us, Jesus says, for the Son of Man goes just as it has been written of him. Luke says, the Son of Man goes according to what has been determined regarding him. The point is that Jesus is reiterating that at every event in his life, everything has happened in accordance with God the Father's plan. Jesus says God the Son has submitted himself to every detail in his Father's plan. He did nothing other than what he saw his Father doing. He submitted in everything to what his father's plan was. And Jesus was not being betrayed by surprise or unknowingly. Nothing was spiraling out of control. Why does Jesus bring this up at this time? To make sure his disciples know that nothing took him by surprise. Jesus wasn't unknowingly dragged to the cross. He wasn't tricked or bamboozled into that event. He came knowing exactly what was going to happen. Judas wasn't catching Jesus. Jesus was giving himself as a ransom for many. This was his plan from the very beginning. The believers prayed in Acts 4. We had this read this morning. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, listen, to do whatever your hand and your purpose 
predestined to occur. All of the events that were leading up to this moment had all been predetermined by God the Father. Nothing was taking Jesus by surprise. Daniel Doriani says, The death and resurrection of Jesus fulfills a plan that predates human history. A plan that predates human history. You've heard it said before, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Before the beginning of the world, this plan was in place. Not only had this situation been foreordained, but it had been foretold. And this is what Jesus can say. It's, the Son of Man is going just as it has been written about him. It's not only been planned by my Father, but it's been written about. It's been prophesied that this would happen. Calvin states that it is so important that we understand that Jesus was not accidentally dragged by men to the cross, but that the sacrifice had been appointed by an eternal decree of God for expiating the sins of the world. Riken says, the cross was not some kind of tragic misfortune. The empty tomb was not a lucky break. It was all in God's perfect and sovereign plan. Henderson says, Jesus' death did not mean the triumph of his enemies, but rather the realization of God's gracious, sovereign, and ever-victorious plan. See how the commentators are lining up here together? (laughs) Because they're saying what the Bible's saying here. Jesus is saying, this is what was been planned from the beginning. No one's tricking me into this. No one's dragging me against my will because they couldn't. If it wasn't my will, no one could bring me there. I came from the very beginning for this purpose. This purpose was set up from eternity past. It's been what God the Father has in in store in order to effect the most marvelous rescue that has ever been effected. Jesus tells this so his disciples don't doubt the reason why the betrayal happened. Jesus says it's all been planned. It's all part of the plan. God is effecting what he purposed to bring to pass. And perhaps we could also say that besides it being an assurance to the disciples, especially in, especially in retrospect, it also is a sort of merciful warning as well. Jesus says, Woe to the man through whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Again, remember, Jesus is disclosing that he knows Judas's plans, which should serve as a warning to Judas. It is a reminder that God even furnishes warnings to those who are hardened in their heart against him. You know, that's also an act of God's magnanimous grace, that he gives warnings to people who are hardened against him. He still furnishes them warnings. Judas is faced with a choice. Since his plot is already known by Jesus, will he rush forward to attempt to get it done or repent of the whole thing? And we see what it is that Judas did. He did the former. This is one of those points in which we have to remember that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are both true. They're both true. The only way you can hold Scripture consistently is to argue for both simultaneously. Man is responsible and God is sovereign. God is sovereign over every single act that anyone ever does. And yet man is responsible for the actions that he takes. Classic example is Joseph and his brothers in Genesis 50. We've spoken of this one before. Joseph says to his brothers, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Does that mean that his brothers didn't sin against him? No, they absolutely sinned against him. They absolutely did wrong things. But you see, God is still sovereign over all those events. Even sinful actions of sinners, God is sovereign over. 
Again, say this way in Acts 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over, listen, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So why was he delivered over? By the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. The next statement, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it's impossible for him to be held in its power. This is why Jesus can say that all was planned, and yet he can also say, woe to the man who does the betraying. God sovereignly works all things together, even evil actions, to bring about his good purposes, but he does not make sin any less sinful as he works his marvelous plan. And he doesn't make the sinner any less guilty. The sinner is guilty. The sinner is no less sinful. But God sovereignly orchestrates all things to bring to pass his glorious purpose. This is the way the Bible describes these matters. You have to hold them together. You do a great disservice to the Bible if you start to play with your definition of who God is by lessening his sovereignty. He is sovereign. Everything that happens is according to his sovereign plan and will. And yet, the, man, the, the Bible also holds man responsible for his actions. Jesus goes on to say, good for him if he hadn't even been born. Jesus says it would have been better if Judas had not even been born, for the crime that he's about to commit is going to bring horrid consequences upon his own head. But even this warning is not heeded by Judas, and all it does is heaps further guilt upon him. Understand that God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, Exodus 34, 7. Romans 2. Great description of this as well. Do you think lightly of the the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. Wicked people are not getting away with their sin. There's two ways in which sin will be dealt with eternally. Number one, you have them dealt with through Jesus on the cross. So number two, you will be dealt with eternally in a place of torment and fire in the second death, hell. Again, Calvin says, Though God, by his righteous judgment, appointed for the price of our redemption the death of his son, yet nevertheless Judas, in betraying Christ, brought upon himself righteous condemnation. Because he was full of treachery and greed. In short, God's determination that the world should be redeemed does not at all interfere with Judas being a wicked traitor. Both are true. Doriani says, The Lord's control is so perfect that he can accomplish his purposes while granting us the freedom to follow our desires. This is another way to be said. Did Judas do what he wanted to do that day? Yes, he did. He fulfilled the desires of his heart. Did God predetermine that those things would happen? Yes, he did. Both of those statements are true. While God determined Judas' betrayal, Judas desired it, he craved it, he enacted it, he followed through with it. He didn't listen to any of the warnings. It happened as God predestined it would, yet Judas receives the penalty for his wicked duplicity, his base greed, his murderous betrayal. So it goes for everyone who hears the warning of the gospel. Just as we are here today hearing the warning of the gospel, if you do not repent, you will likewise perish. Right? 
There are some news reports that we'll never forget, nor the circumstances under which we first heard them. Depending upon your generation, news of the attack on Pearl Harbor might be one of those for you, or the news of John F. Kennedy's assassination. You might remember when you first heard that or where you were when it happened. Or news of the Space Shuttle Challenger's explosion. I'll date myself. I remember that one happening in grade school for me. Or news of the terrorist attack on 9-11. And I'm sure married women don't forget when, where, and how their husbands proposed to them, right? There are pieces of news that we'll always remember. I'm sure that this night from Jesus' ministry was not a night or a piece of news that was soon forgotten by the disciples. Jesus left an indelible mark in their minds by sharing this when he did and how he did it. All four Gospels record the discussion and it's picked up even in books of Acts and other letters from the apostles. Everyone present at the Last Supper couldn't forget this piece of bad news shared in the midst of the celebration. They didn't understand it all right then, but later on they would look back and receive comfort from Jesus that these events had all happened according to plan. All of it happened according to prophecy. You see, sometimes good news follows on the heel of bad news. And this is no more perfectly illustrated than when someone truly tells the gospel. The gospel, a.k.a. good news, includes marvelous things like rescue, salvation, freedom, forgiveness, cleansing, adoption, resurrection, new life. But those terms derive their meaning from understanding man's condition and position before being transformed by the gospel. The man is in danger, condemned, enslaved, sinful, dirty, estranged, without hope, and dead. You see, the gospel is the greatest news you could ever hear. That a sinful man under the wrath of a holy God can be washed clean. That he can be forgiven of his sins. That he can be granted the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for all who will believe and trust in him and fulfilled all righteousness on their behalf. Where were you the first time you heard this news? I mean, really heard it. Perhaps your conversion was preceded by many tellings of the gospel. Many seeds may have been planted before you were granted eyes to see and ears to hear. Perhaps you grew up in a Christian home and going to a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. And you heard the gospel many, many times. And as a result, maybe for you, you have a hard time pinpointing an exact moment when you know, God gave you eyes to see and a heart to believe. But you know for certain that he has granted you repentance and faith and you love him. Others of you might have had a Damascus Road experience, you know, something like the Apostle Paul, where one moment you're breathing threats against Christians and you hate the church and you hate God and you shake your fist against heaven. And then the next moment you found yourself completely and utterly undone before the Lord, thankful and grateful that he could save you. Whatever the case, there is no greater news to hear and therefore there is no greater news to tell. I pray that we would adopt kind of the mentality of the newsies. We heard that description of them given by an individual way back in the day, right? late 1800s. You know, these children won't leave you alone. You know, you have to buy their paper. You know, why aren't we like that? That kind of passion, that kind of fervency. Let's pound the pavement. Let's tell our friends and neighbors. We have good news to share. And unlike the newsies who had to try to come up with some scheme to get you to buy the paper, we have something that's intrinsically valuable. 
More valuable than any other piece of news that ever could be shared with anyone, anywhere. We should be so emphatic in telling others about God's marvelous love, that He so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The Bible says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Yeah, we might have to deal with some bad news, but let's make sure we tell them the good news. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. And even in considering this bit of bad news that Jesus had to share with his disciples regarding the coming betrayal. That Lord, there is hope in the midst of all of it. Because even Judas' betrayal was worked by your sovereign hand for good. Bringing about the most blessed deliverance ever imagined. That sinners can be saved. And be, have their relationship restored with you, a holy God. Thank you for this marvelous blessing. And Lord, may we be quick to share the good news of Jesus with others. Thank you for having shared this news with us. Thank you for having changed our hearts and for having blessed us with the opportunity to share that good news with others. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.